0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Historical Friction, a podcast about understanding the past and reframing the present through pop culture, adaptation, fiction, all sorts of things. I'm Alice Proctor. I'm a writer and art historian. And for this episode, you'll also hear Sarah, Abigail, and Helen, my regular co hosts. This episode is one that we've avoided doing for a really long time. At Historical Friction, we're really interested in creative anachronism and not so much in the kind of devoted, obsessive accuracy, although we do love that and it has its place. It's more interesting to us to have fun and do something creative when we reflect on historical narratives. So on April Fool's Day this year, Sarah took charge of our Twitter account for the day and the four of us all posted some very silly jokes about Bridgerton. We did a thread making fun of the kind of obsessive historical accuracy stickler for detail think pieces and responses and things like that that accompanied the show when it first came out in 2020, and have reignited with the second season earlier this year. We did that because we think we're hilarious. And also, Bridgerton is clearly not actually a historical drama. It is vaguely set in the early 19th century. But more than anything else, it's a romance series. Unfortunately, quite a lot of people on Twitter took us very seriously. Um, We were accused of, among other things, biphobia, which is hilarious considering who the hosts of this podcast actually are, like who we are as people. Um, And more than that, we decided we should finally talk about Bridgerton in all of its horror and glory. So this episode is a long one. But we unpacked the first two seasons of Bridgerton, what they do wrong, what we like about them, where we kind of can get on board with the narrative and where we have bigger problems with it. I think that's all I'm really going to say to ease you into the episode. But yeah, we had a lot of things to think about with this show. It has some really complicated and interesting and messy decisions in the way that it's been made. We're not interested in the accuracy of it, but we are interested in why certain choices have been made. You can see our Twitter thread and all of our other silly little opinions online at History Friction. We're also on Patreon and we've just started putting out monthly digests. So if you want to support us there, you'll get an email once a month talking about the things that we're into at the moment, giving you some idea of some of our upcoming episodes and things like that. And, you know... Chat to us, give us your thoughts, let us know what you're thinking about, let us know if there's something that you would like us to cover. I hope you enjoy the show, and yeah, Bridgerton is weird. Okay, hi, we're back. First things first, fuck you to all the haters who didn't understand our Twitter jokes. (laughs) We're here and we're talking about Bridgerton.
1: (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) I feel like this episode is going to be like full talk therapy for me because I just, I just want to understand. I want you all to help me understand (laughs) the pop culture phenomenon that is Bridgerton and why, despite sitting through two seasons of it and watching it very attentively and thinking about all the ways that this should be my jams and I should love it. My brain will
0: not allow me to. <laughs> right, yeah, absolutely. I watch this and I'm like, "What? I loved Desperate Romantics. I love this kind of like unhinged contemporary pop culture, historical drama. What is it about Bridgerton that makes me want to break things?
2: <laughs> yeah, my problem is that, like, I feel like I need to straight out of the gate say that I love Regency romance so yeah. much. Like it is such a a, a nice and like yes, good yeah. like a genre that I really enjoy. And obviously there are good parts and bad parts. But like generally, I'm like, oh yeah, this is this is going to be good. The first season, I was so excited, and then I was like, oh, it's not not super exciting, not great. But this, I mean, it was like 400 hours of just endless boredom. It was beautiful
3: <laughs> boredom, though. Uh, I think, like, aesthetically, it looks... Like, I i love the look of it. It feels like, like this eternal, like, spring, summertime. And, like, everybody has, like, really pretty colors and pretty fabrics. Not necessarily pretty cuts of the dresses. <laughs> um, but, like, it just... I think it, it sort of... Um, Looks like a French pastry to me. It looks like looking in a bake shop window. Mm. Yeah,
2: and I okay, so I do get that, and I I quite enjoy that as well. But it becomes really jarring whenever they move outside of the sort mm-hmm. of Regency, or, or like the social circle that they move in, and they're interacting with like quote unquote mm-hmm. regular people. Yes. <laughs>
3: Shall we do a quick overview of the plot for for the few people here who yes. maybe haven't what, seen it? Uh, so the Bridgerton series who don't on know Netflix. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the Bridgerton series on Netflix uh, is based on Julia Quinn's Bridgerton book series that came out around 2000 or so, and every couple years after that Um, and it follows a family the Bridgerton family um, and the children of the Bridgerton family specifically who are all named in alphabetical order. So the oldest is Anthony then Benedict then Colin then Daphne then Eloise, A, B, C, D, E, F, and then Francesca, and then Gregory, and then Hyacinth.
0: I could not have named those siblings with a gun to
2: my
3: head. (laughs) Look at me go. Um, But then uh, the first book focuses on, or the first book and the first series of the Netflix film focus on uh, Daphne Bridgerton and her season in London in, I think, 1813 is when it's supposed to take place. Uh, And it is the book is called the duke and i and essentially it's a very standard typical regency romance of um you know she's this naive virginal girl uh and she meets this handsome sexy duke who has lots of emotional baggage which all the men do in regency romances it (laughs) seems like they fall for each other they do sort of a fake dating trope uh and then they get caught kissing in a garden and then they are forced to marry for honor Uh, but he said he doesn't want any kids and because she grew up with such a large family Daphne really wants kids Uh, they have lots and lots of hot sex but he pulls out every time and she doesn't understand that that's his birth control method she thinks that's just how it works she gets told it's his birth (laughs) control method Uh, she's very upset and really honestly trigger warning but she essentially rapes him like does a marital rape and uh he's uh, he's asking to pull out he doesn't want to be having sex with her anymore and she's like haha nobody you're gonna come inside of me He does. She's not pregnant, but then everybody blames him for their miscommunications and nobody tells her she needs to apologize for what she did. And everyone's like, yeah, he's really weird for not wanting kids. Right. And then ultimately he's like, I guess I do want kids. And then they have a baby at the end because that's the trope of Regency romance is that there's a baby in the epilogue almost every time. Um, so that's, and that's essentially season one of the Netflix show as well. Um, and then season two of the Netflix show follows Anthony Bridgerton, who was a rake in the first season and, his, and you know
0: he's a rake because he's got sideburns
3: yes uh and his courting of um in the book Kate Sheffield in the show Kate Sharma or Edwina her, her the sister of Kate is who he's courting uh but of course he's falling for Kate uh and then shenanigans ensue um and they also have sort of well And this one deviates significantly from the book, which we can talk about. But in the Netflix show, they hate each other and then Edwina, but they love each other. And then Edwina kind of realizes that they hate, love each other, like when she's at the altar with Anthony and like runs away and jilts him. And then there's like all of this, you know, drama without any tension and kind of boringness. Uh, And then ultimately... Um, Kate and Anthony end up together which is completely different from how the book works where of course they ultimately end up together but we can get into that later. You summarized
1: that so succinctly given all of the subplots and insanity (laughs) that happened in this show. Well done.
3: Oh yeah. Oh, we. I guess we should mention Lady Whistledown as the framing oh, device geez. as well. Um, so yeah. So there's yeah. this
0: kind of narrative device running through both seasons of Lady Whistledown's Society Papers, <laughs> and it's just this like gossip sheet basically. But somehow she knows everything, and she's sharing all this scandal and hijinks and you. And so in the first season, Eloise spends her whole time. Eloise is Bridgerton number five. Spends her whole exactly. time trying to figure out how, who 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 Whistledown is and what's going on here. Hijinks since you, turns out in the final scene of the first season that it's her best friend, Penelope, who's been helping her the whole time, trying to figure this out. And then season two involves a little bit more hijinks. It's the same plot, <laughs> second yeah. verse, same as the first, <laughs> kind of like very clunkily done. Um, and eventually she finds out that Penelope is Lady Whistledown, there's a big fight, there's lots of drama, the whole thing is bad eloise spends all of season two running around trying to like catch her out at the printers and stuff like that and it's just not very Mm. fun or interesting because eloise's entire personality is that she's not like the other girls and and penelope's
1: entire personality is basically like everyone else thinks this woman is ugly even though she's like a very attractive woman and like played by Nicola Coughlin who is like really hot. (laughs) Um, It's the the sort of like whole premise for how Whistledown works is this idea that an ugly woman is invisible and can sit at the sidelines of things and observe without being noticed. Which I guess, like, technically is interesting, but again, like, it's all reliant on the fact that, like, to be in that place and at that time, Penelope already has to be, like, rich and connected and in the right circles.
2: I have s- several thoughts. So, there's also the whole subplot about, like, the Queen being really, really invested in who Lady Whistledown is, and therefore, like, orchestrates all these. Balls and events to try to like catch her out, and she com- is convinced that it is Eloise. Eloise is like trying to figure out who it is as well, and therefore, uh, Penelope pins, like, accuses Eloise of being a radical and like provides all this evidence for her, like, hanging about in like radical print shops talking about women's rights or whatever like that's not really ever specified but accusing your best friend of being a radical in regency england like that would have actual real life consequences that's such a i can know and okay so i know that this this is an imaginary imaginary like fantasy land and not like real regency england but if you're going to have like these um revolutionary print shops then like like they either don't exist or they exist as more than just set dressing.
1: What are they mm-hmm. revolting against, and... I want to know, because they set up this world where everyone absolutely loves the monarchy. Which makes sense because this is such yes. a pet peeve of mine, but every single character in Bridgerton is a lord and a lady apart from like the working classos that are sort of scrabbling around wearing little hats and and carrying newspapers to people but it is this kind of (laughs) strange thing where everyone is very very satisfied with the status quo as it exists so how can how can revolutionary print shops exist when they have very little to revolt against apparently in this sanitized version of the history?
3: Well, one thing is that we never see anybody outside of the Bridgerton's upper echelon. And if they're all lords and ladies, they're not going to be <laughs> revolting against no. the monarchy. So we don't actually see how, like, people outside of the bubble of the town feel about the monarchy. But it it does seem that things are generally positive. Um, and we do have Eloise briefly give some lip service to reading Mary Wollstonecraft and telling Penn that like oh I wish Lady Whistledown were like Mary Wollstonecraft and I'm like girl they're doing very different (laughs) things here like
0: like the full extent of Eloise's radical politics seems to be I like books and I don't want to wear dresses but also (laughs) she
2: turns up she goes to like some sort of radical meeting where all she does is like exchange witty banter with a Teo the print apprentice or whatever he is If it was all set within the Bridgerton family Fine, like I don't expect them to understand or to relate to radical politics at all Because obviously that's not their job and like it wouldn't work for them to do that But the whole point is that she then emerges into this world where this stuff exists She's accused of being a radical and the only consequence to this is that when they're like lounging around together in their drawing room, they're they like quip about it.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. I do think that the whole um I think it was Nicole Cochran on uh Twitter uh when the series dropped said something about how Eloise's boyfriend was just there for the small subset of the population yeah. who also loves newsies, and um, <laughs> I related to that tweet so deeply in my soul, and I was like, "This is it!" And I- I've gathered since living here, like over the past almost four years, that Newsies didn't quite make the splash here that it did in America. But let me tell you, it was big (laughs) when I was in middle school, um, which was like multiple years after it came out as well. But somehow we like got our hands on like, I don't know, an early DVD or maybe a late VHS. And we were like Newsies and Christian Bale and that little news cap was everybody's like dream boat. so I do kind of wonder since this is an American production which is very clear from lots of instances um that like a lot of Americans are working on this um that I was like maybe this is like literally just to like tap into all the people who they know are now in their like th- early 30s and be like hey remember how you loved the newsies <laughs>
2: I'm sorry, I'm just googling this. Is this like a 1992
3: Disney musical? Oh yeah! Yeah, Christian Bale, as voice, Jack right. Kelly. Yeah. Oh, we should watch it. We should do an episode. About I, Newsies.
0: I, lo- so I have I have seen Newsies. Um, it's it's bizarre. It's it's absolutely unhinged. Um, I have a fr- an American friend, who basically like I was staying with her and she basically tied me to the sofa and was like, mm-hmm. "You have to watch this film." That and sounds honestly, like American. Incredible. Christian Bale cannot sing. No. <laughs> the whole thing is completely insane. It's
2: got Bill um, Pullman in it. It's. I, it,
0: Oh yeah, it's, it's completely bizarre. It's so um, and wonderful. We will definitely be doing an episode on Yeezys at some point because it's honestly just like such an insane cultural phenomenon. I... This is a highly specific thing that I found incredibly annoying. The print shop boy and Eloise <laughs> have the same face. They look really alike.
2: I mean, the, whoever did the casting call for this just had like... Have just cloned one person because they all... Like, every, I understand that everyone in the Bridgerton family is supposed to look the same, but why does, I, I can't yeah. tell anyone apart.
3: I literally cannot tell Anthony and Benedict apart. I've not been able to since the first season, and there were multiple, there was the scene, I guess, where it was Benedict who was high on mushrooms in the second season, like, talking yeah. about, or like. Took the mushrooms. I don't know, but I was just like, "That's Anthony," and I was like, "Why is Anthony talking about going to painting school?" And I was like, "I guess he's just decided to give up courting Edwina or something." And then I was like, "Oh, it's Benedict." Like I just the whole time, I never knew who either of them were.
2: That's why. That's why they have this like clunky. uh, I have decided to go to painting school, and I, the painter, I who go to the (laughs) Royal Academy, so that you'll be able to tell them apart.
0: Yeah. It's like Colin keeps talking about
3: his
0: fucking gap year. It's just because that's
3: the only way you can work out which one he is. Oh, I thought that scene where he went to visit Marina was so clunky too. It just felt like they wanted the actress who played Marina to have something to do this season. And I was like, this was completely unnecessary. Could we not have invented a better storyline and like brought them in in a more substantial way or something if you really liked her because I think she was a great actress and it's a cool character Mm -hmm. I'd like to follow up with but like... really, we just have this awkward ham-fisted scene where Colin goes and is like, I know you're married now, but are you happy? Marriage is about love. And I was like, she literally got pregnant out of wedlock in the first season, which is still a huge no-no in this fantasy Regency world. And then the guy died. And then his brother, who's an aristocrat, came in and was like, I'll marry you and claim the child as my own. And Colin's out here being like, are you happy? Are you in love? And I was like, she got the best pause possible ending for this like oh my gosh this
0: this woman has a husband who financially supports her loves her kids and is like the least obnoxious man in the whole show like yeah he's boring and he's really into plants but at least he's not beating her
2: exactly like uh... they're just setting it up for like uh what there must be colin's story that's next then oh no but colin marries penelope yeah he does But then so that, so that there'll be some tension so that you can yeah. believably, quote-unquote, uh, think that he is in love with someone else and blah, blah, blah.
0: Which he did in season one, mm. and it was boring as fuck. I saw something <laughs> on Twitter, and like I don't know how true this is, that suggested that Julia Quinn only allowed the adaptation to make all these changes, provided that the central romances were left pretty much untouched. Interesting. Mm. Which I think is interesting, because one of the things that Bridgerton has made such a splash for is it's casting I don't want to call it colorblind casting because it's not truly colorblind truly colorblind casting would mean uh, that characters even within a family are cast from different backgrounds mm-hmm. and ethnicities and it's literally just like who is the best actor for this character is what true colorblind casting is and frankly, if you could do that in the 90s Cinderella I think you could be doing it in bridgerton um, but the the Changes that Bridgerton has made is to introduce characters and actors who are not white to play characters who are essentially very white Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they are written as Regency aristocrats. And this was a criticism that I saw a lot coming out of the first season, which is that, like, okay, so you've got a black actor playing a white character. That's still not, that's not really like the kind of groundbreaking diversity Mm -hmm. that you think it is. My biggest hurdle with this as well is that, like, if you really wanted to do progressive casting, Why are both of the main families white? Yeah. Why are the Bridgertons and the Feather... Feather, Featheringtons. Featheringtons. (laughs) (laughs) um, Them. Why are they both entirely white families, right? Why are you casting families within a single background and a single kind of racialized category? We are not necessarily the people to talk about how progressive or effective this is, but I think it's important to note that... The main characters the kind of central families are all white and i think that that is a really clear example of how bridgerton is this kind of quite liberal quite centrist view of itself as progressive while still being essentially
1: yeah absolutely and it kind of it's really interesting to me how it tries to take this centrist path and Tread a middle ground politically. Where, sort of, on the one hand, they could mm-hmm. have gone the completely colourblind bl- route and simply not alluded to the races of the different characters at all. But they didn't quite take that tack, which is interesting because mm. perhaps, in a, a way of preempting any type of criticism of this choice, which you often see with you know colorblind or su- pseudo colorblind casting for different things, um, they made this decision instead to insert sort of three lines about it, which was effectively that um the queen is a black woman, and because King George loved her so much and married her, this had the knock on effect of elevating all black people and people of color within the society so that they could take on um, lordships and dukedoms and viscount hoods. I don't know all the correct terms within the aristocracy, I apologize. Um, (laughs) And this is kind of treated as, by one royal decree, all of the racial politics of this world are swept aside. And I think they literally say that in the show. Lady Danbury says something like, you know, the king married the queen so that colour would no longer be a concern for our people. Bish bash bosh. Done. And (sighs) it kind of is really frustrating because it creates this world where the internal logic is very unstable. You know, I I would be more on board in a sense with a show where, you know, people's race is not alluded to and people are just, you know, doing the characterization, playing the parts um, as is. Great. Fine. But it's this kind of, like, strange internal logic where you can sweep aside certain elements of societal prejudice as if they are no longer important, while simultaneously sustaining others, which we know, sort of historically are very, very tied to racial othering and and all these different factors which are interlinked. So it, it becomes, like, a very unstable universe, I think. And I as I was sitting through this and just trying to work out, like, my various frustrations, I think I did keep coming back to that. It was, like, the rules, quote-unquote, that they are living within do not make sense even... On their own terms, if you see what i 'm saying
2: yeah, yeah, if you are going to just cast um, whichever actor you want and have like non white char- one non white actors playing the characters I think that's great, I love it, but then you don 't have to then explain that like the Sharmas char- came from India because what what were the English aristocracy doing in India? <laughs> Why is yeah. it possible to work as a <gasps> oh <quirk my. laughs> in India? What, what what a weird just quirk of fate that we don't have to examine in any depth at all?
3: Yeah, I feel like that also applies to the whole concept of slavery because of course part of the things that you would imagine that Eloise would have been reading would have been like Mm -hmm. Wilberforce kind of stuff. Uh, But I guess that doesn't matter here. Um, And I do think a lot of that is because most like 2000s era and even today, Regency romances, they do gloss over slavery. They just act like that's not a thing. All of them pretty much are set in England where there was not slavery Mm -hmm. on the ground, as it were. Um, And... You know, you don't get Regency romances set in America, really. <laughs> you can't. I mean, you can't you do, do get,
2: that. You, you get like, well, not anymore, but you used to get like plantation. Yeah, romances, yeah, yeah and right, those were and bad. then it, which is like awful. But then, yeah. so I think what happened, like part of the reason that Regency romance is so popular is that you can have this uh, entirely white fantasy uh, where none of these things happen. And you can just kind of forget about the, you know, colonial violence and slavery and imperialism that underpins mm-hmm. this wealth that makes this possible.
3: Yeah, nobody questions where the aristocracy is getting their money, which I think is something that gets lobbed at Jane Austen a lot. But in Mansfield Park, she does make explicit where the money comes from. Um, but I think like a lot of people read Jane Austen superficially or only mm-hmm. as period dramas like the Keira Knightly Pride and Prejudice, which is a fun movie, don't get me wrong. But yeah. it's I think that Jane Austen has this reputation of being romance rather than social satire. And so things like Bridgerton are are quote unquote, following in the footsteps of Jane Austen, but she doesn't actually do any kind of social satire or make any kind of substantial points about the society that she's writing about, which is everything that Jane Austen was doing. Um, it's very frustrating. But
2: I also think it's okay for a, a romance to not be a social satire. oh yeah so sure. it's allowed to be just its, frothy and its fun. own thing right like no so but what's frustrating about bridgerton is that uh like if if you want to have this if you want to write this like beautiful fan- escapist fantasy and mm. or you know you examine the things on its own terms and so you focus very intensely on uh, relationships and human emotions and sex like these are fine but then don't have someone work as a clerk in mm-hmm. india <laughs> yeah. like, just just don't do that yeah just don't like just just like why have you changed the name like just keep calling them mm-hmm. kate and edwina sheffield and yeah. like don't introduce this entire like cherry-picking little bits of like pan-indian culture to insert onto these characters right and like So
0: (laughs) this is a thing that I am really interested in. This is something that I have thought a lot about in the context of how we represent nationality and race in art galleries. There are some portraits of Queen Charlotte that have been picked out by historians and kind of artists and, and theorists to think about the ambiguity of her racialization in art. There are some paintings and descriptions of her where she's described as having darker skin Africanized features, very curly hair, the way that she is characterized in art and narrative leaves this kind of ambiguity in her racialization. That is fascinating. Who finds that interesting? Who does that? Like, why is that in some descriptions and some portraits and not others? She is a really interesting example because when we talk about the kind of history of race and racialization in the UK, she's a really prominent example of someone where there is this kind of degree of ambiguity around her background and what she looked like. There are other examples in people like Philippa of Haino who may have been mixed race. She may have been a black woman. The representation of these figures is so interesting and for both Philip of Hainau and Queen Charlotte, they have access to certain spaces of power because of their royalty as well, right? This is fascinating. I talk about Queen Charlotte on some of my, my tours when I'm thinking about this representation. And it's a really interesting conversation and it always leads to discussions of like someone like Meghan Markle and how she has been treated mm. and how she has a like particular position within british pop culture and now the british monarchy and the kind of questions of how she has been pushed to conform to eurocentric beauty standards and things like that it's a fascinating and really interesting conversation when you take the kind of core of that discussion around queen charlotte and turn it into george married a black woman and now everything's fine you are mm-hmm. losing more than you gain mm-hmm And this is, like, I don't know. I think that Golda Rochevel does an incredible job as Queen Charlotte. She's a great Mm -hmm. actress. I think some of the most memorable acting in Bridgerton comes from its non-white actors. Like, Simone Ashley is fantastic. Regis Jean Page is by far the best thing about season one. Because he's the only one who understands how horny this show is.
3: Yeah.
0: Um... Ajoa Ando and Golda Rochevelle are like the campest characters in this and they really like play with the campness of this show and Mm. and clearly have fun with their characters and I really appreciate that. Meanwhile you have all of the identikit Bridgerton boys sort of taking themselves incredibly seriously and not actually having any fun Mm. with this insane These bland
1: indistinguishable white boys that by comparison you kind of look at them and you think I would rather you weren't in this, <laughs> or I did, all the time.
2: Right, exactly. It could just have been played <laughs> by the same person.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's why I'm kind of like the guy who plays Theo. I'm like, well, did you, did you initially audition for one of the Bridgerton boys, and this is your consolation prize? Because you honestly have the same face as Eloise, and it's really confusing to me. <laughs>
3: Um yeah, I do think that's interesting though. I also think the idea that Charlotte uh that, that George married Charlotte and now everything's fine really c- consolidates and um keeps power with a white mm. man. Um, oh boy, yes, <laughs> Which in on the, the one sense white people do have to be part of the solution for racism like this is a white people problem too and it's like we have to engage and be a part of the solution but on the other hand being like the monarch the king this overarching white man who rules everything deigned to marry a black woman and now everything's fine and it's like actually that's that's not good either like (laughs) that's not that's not a good message necessarily um i don't like it
0: my personal, like, biggest problem that I have with Bridgerton is the lack of George the Fourth. Um mm-hmm. where yes. is Prince regent? regent in the <laughs> where Regency is terrible horny brothers <laughs> and their eight mistresses each and all of their like pseudonyms and offspring and insanity. Like, how can you do a Regency mm. romance and nothing? It is have a really regent?
1: bold choice yeah. that is quite fascinating to me, is that they have like done away with Prinny completely. Like, I think they make one joke right. about his weight, and other than that, he's not alluded to at all. And it's all kind of done with the specific yeah. goal of making Queen Charlotte like, the central figure. The, like, campy mm. anti-heroine on the throne who's, like, acting as a puppet master. A puppet, <clears throat> a puppet mistress, yeah. perhaps. Um <laughs> because she's kind of like... I interpreted her character as almost being in like midlife crisis mode. So she has this crisis in her marriage <laughs> and she is not like romantically satisfied or fulfilled and she's also really, really worried about her husband who has this undefined mental illness. We don't really necessarily know what was wrong with with King George um to this day like it's still up for debate but it's kind of per- portrayed in the show as being a sort of like akin to dementia is that fair to say um so it's exactly. it's kind of this thing of like she is playing with all these people's lives because she is bored and she is frustrated and it's like the one perk that she gets in having this high status position and so I think the reason that they've done away with with Prinny is like just to, with the Prince Regent is to allow her to have more power in the plot because if you add this other character, the Prince, who is like way more chaotic and like historically and canonically like (laughs) the most insane person that you can have um, in a drama... Then it sort of robs Charlotte of of some of her power.
3: Yeah. Although
0: I kind of love the idea of him being like technically in charge, and she can, you can right, do the yeah. kind of like power behind the throne thing. You can do the fact that she had all of this power, and now she's just like some guy's mum, and she's and that's the sort of midlife crisis that she's having, right? Is that she wants to be important and powerful. Having said that, I. Uh, Listening to you talk just now, I'm like, oh, I'm suddenly really grateful that Pruny isn't in the show because I absolutely do not trust the makers of Bridgerton to be sensitive or considerate at all when dealing with a character's weight. I simply do not trust them. And I do not want to see them include any fat characters in this show. Oh my God, that's so true. Like, when you think
1: about um, if you guys have seen the show Taboo, the way they treat the Prince Regent in that Mm -hmm. show um, with. I believe it's Mark Gatiss in the role like fully fat suited up and they make him like a profoundly disgusting oh, Christ. character and it is like very othering of fatness.
3: We could just have Hugh Laurie come back and reprise his role from Blackadder as the Prince Regent you know he's a bit too old now maybe but I think he brings the right energy to it so yes. <laughs> I'd be down for that.
0: <laughs> yeah I think, I think that this comes back to like one of the things that fundamentally Bridgerton is lacking mm-hmm. for me. It's not Campana. Mm. this is so clearly a show made by straights for straights there is no campness there is no like level of frivolity or fun no one seems to be
2: enjoying unless
1: themselves. they're actively receiving cunnilingus a... in the scene no one seems to be enjoying themselves yes.
0: <laughs> and even then she's like lying on a stone You're staircase that doesn't seem like a good time thing.
2: oh, oh. <laughs> So I think actually that like one of the things in Regency romance that often happens is that you don't get access to the very top, like you don't see the queen mm. or you don't see any of the Royal family, but you do have like the second best tier. It's like the Duke, right? So that's why everyone's getting married to Dukes. And that's why there's like a million <laughs> Dukes in England at this point. Um. Mm-hmm. So, and and you also so you don't see the top layer and you don't and but you also don't like you don't hear about like mm-hmm. the Pilow massacre and you don't hear about like yeah. the uh Carter Street uh conspiracy and like the actual things that are happening because people in regions of romance live in this really insulated little bubble where the things that matter is if someone like cuts you when you're out like does it look at you when you're out that uh, literally cut you that would actually matter <laughs> uh, or if like <laughs> Uh, someone like snubs you for a dance, or not enough people like come to your house for whatever bullshit social occasion you're putting on. So you have this like really intense um, value placed on re- like really intense small things. But what? But then because Bridgeton really like branches out and has the top le- level of power, like the royalty is like really intimately involved. And then you also have Eloise being a radical, like the the social tension. The tension that's created by putting all this value on small, minutiae um, interactions becomes completely watered down and disappears, and it, it doesn't matter anymore because because you mm-hmm. have the royalties included, and because so mm-hmm. um, so yeah. I'd, in in my experience, it's not. Like I do I haven't read a lot of romance, uh, Regency romance where you do see the Regent no. or the Queen at all. No. Pretty much uh, never. So it's like it feels like they've they've made this choice uh, to to deviate from the genre, and it's made it worse. Mm, I wonder if that
1: explains another of the huge frustrations that I've had watching this show, which is that this is a rompy ensemble piece like there's a lot of characters and you have to like really immerse yourself in the world to keep it straight but the issue that I have with that and it kept coming back to this for me is that no one in the ensemble with a few specific exceptions of like duos no one in the ensemble seems to really enjoy each other so you bounce around between scenes You know, it's it's like a, a whack-a-mole of characters and a bingo card of Regency settings. People bouncing from lavish location to lavish location and having sort of quippy asides with one another. But the chemistry in so many of these instances falls really flat. And I think, like, the example that really brought this home for me was the episode where... Um, Anthony and Edwina are going to get married at the palace. They're partly getting married kind of by peer pressure because the Queen is bored and she got very invested in their relationship because Edwina is her favourite of the season. And um, she kind of has orchestrated all this very, very lavish party. The whole of society has come. So you get to see all these interactions between different people and people who haven't like been in the same configurations. That should be, if the chemistry was right, a recipe for really brilliant, entertaining television. Because you have the potential for all these tableau scenes of people moving through the palace, moving in spaces where they wouldn't normally get to move, and having sort of really interesting interactions. That's the show that I'm writing in my head, because that doesn't happen on the screen. And that episode in particular... (laughs) Which should have kind of been like a, a mid season climax of drama with, with all this kind of like tension of of romance and love and hate coming to the fore is just a lot of people running between rooms. And it is not I'm sorry, yeah. I feel it is sacrilege to say that, it is not compelling television.
3: <laughs> no. Well, and the thing is, is that that in particular really deviates from the book of, um, the Viscount Who Loved Me, uh, so in the book, so I have, I've read a synopsis of this book, I've read two Bridgerton books, I've read The Duke and I, and I've read An Offer from a Gentleman, because that one's a Cinderella adaptation, um, but in the Viscount Who Loved Me, what I understand happens is that, um, Anthony, much like in the series, has decided he has to marry out of duty. Must find a Viscountess, a proper Viscountess. And so he starts courting Edwina. And Edwina also feels like, I must marry out of duty to protect my family. But neither of them really likes each other. So then when he starts falling for Kate, Edwina is kind of like, Woohoo! Great! Do it! Um, as opposed to this series where she's like heartbroken and it's this whole thing. Because every episode, I just... I felt so bad for Edwina while watching it that I really could not get invested in the romance at all because I was like, Edwina's heart's gonna be broken. She's so sweet and like a little cinnamon roll. And like, there was like nothing that I could like do to stop her inevitable heartbreak. And I was like, must protect Edwina. Um, And like, I thought that like early on they have a character named Mr. Lumley who's like escorting her around to a few things. And they have like a weird poetry reading that's set up by lady dan barry yeah um but he reads like this poem and i was like okay so what's gonna happen is edwina's gonna be falling for mr lumley but like she's gonna feel like she has to go with anthony because he's a viscount and like anybody in their right mind would go with a viscount over a mister and she's gonna think it's gonna offer her family more protection even if she doesn't know about this whole weird inheritance plot that went nowhere um, and so I was like, that's what's going to happen. Like, they're going to go down for the weekend and she's going to kind of be like, Anthony's fine, I guess. And then Mr. Lumley's going to show up for the rest of the weekend. And she's going to be like, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm invited here by Anthony. But Mr. Lumley, no, none of that happened. Instead, she was like, I love Anthony. And I was like, <laughs> no you can't love him because you're not gonna end up with him and I was like when are they gonna introduce her love interest like I was just like so upset for most of the series about this whereas in the book that is not at all what happens apparently what happens in the book is that um kate and anthony have the like secretly burning passion for each other but on the surface they hate each other and they don't want to be together and they're having like one of their like i kind of hate you but i guess you're dating my sister conversation and a bee stings her which does happen in the series um Anthony's really sad and like fucked up in his head because his dad died of a bee sting in front of him. And so there's this bee flying around Kate in both the series and the book, and uh, it stings her. And in the book, it explicitly, like, stings her on the boob. And he's like, oh, my God, you're going to die. And she's like, it's just a bee sting. And he's like, I must get the venom out. So he starts, like, manually sucking the venom out of her Oh, my her God. Breast. And at that point, some people walk by and see him literally, like, sucking on her boob. And they're like, holy shit you two are getting married now and they're both like no we don't want to marry each other this isn't what it looks like she was just stung by a bee i hate her and she's like i hate him and everyone's like proper society dictates you must marry now and i think they like didn't go with that storyline because it's really similar to what happens to simon and daphne where they're caught kissing but the difference is that simon and daphne wanted to be kissing they actually really liked each other and like This was a situation where this is like they're forced, it's two people who hate each other who are forced to get married um, and ultimately go from like enemies to lovers. And so it is like different. So I see why they changed it on like a surface level, but I think there's a lot to explore with father relationships for the two male leads um, with like Simon not wanting to marry because of a promise he made to his dad to not have kids versus Anthony not wanting to marry because because he's seen love so strongly. So it's like, there's a lot to get into with the psyche that I think you could do. (laughs) They didn't. And like, as Sarah was saying earlier, regency romance is so much about human relationship and about sex and about like these deep feelings and how they combine with sex and family and all this stuff it's not supposed to be social satire it's supposed to be about these things and I think they kind of didn't do their due diligence by human relationships Mm -hmm. and sex either (laughs) I think that's the problem
2: I think one of the and this is I think this is probably my biggest problem with this show and that is that in regency novels like and even if there's a series of them you get these quite tight uh third person points of view so you you see something through someone's eyes very closely and they have a, and, and enough in when it's done well if you have these series then you see that everyone has a very different understanding of their relationship to their family or Uh, Their relationship to their social values and things around them. And and, uh, so here, because I I feel like they're so invested in the coming seasons, they have to present, they can't just be like, oh, this one person's point of view of their relationship. Like, you have to present, like, Mm -hmm. is this like objective fact? And the other thing about Regency is that. And uh, one of the reasons I think it works is that there is this inherent tension between the uh, the the role someone's like uh, a person's identity formation in the Regency period and modern identity formation. So, in in like the early nineteenth century it was really acceptable to be like well, well this is this is my duty to my family or to my social class or to my clan or like i have to get married to someone of a certain social standing and i have to follow these conventions whereas modern identity information is that i have mm. to be true to myself and i have to follow like none of our parents were like well i'm sorry girls you're gonna have to get married to a duke, if you can, right? Like that's not a thing that really happens anymore.
3: Well, I mean, no. my dad probably would have been really pleased if I'd married a duke. <laughs> Just going to put that out also, there. Also,
2: like allowed <laughs> to not marry a duke. Like you're allowed to choose who you have a relationship. With True. Them. And then for everyone, and, and so a lot of the tension and the kind of heroism in a Regency romance comes from uh, a two people making a modern choice. In the face of, ad- of the adversity presented to them by society, so they are choosing to be true to themselves and follow love, often like in a way that coincidentally happens to also align with their social values. And but you know, like at their hearts, they're following their hearts rather than what their families want them to do. But in Bridgeton, literally every all everyone is saying is like, oh yeah, just you should do what, stay true to yourself. You have to, like... And I I wrote in the notes, I wrote this whole thing about it. And then we get to the final season, and Edwina literally says to her sister, you have to be true to yourself. And it's like, well, you've just dissolved any tension that is like, arisen from this format. Like, there is nothing left there. It's just people saying to each other that you should be happy. Biggest fucking complaint about this whole
3: thing. I was just going to say, I think for me, um, what... I kind of hated about the form formulation of Bridgerton is that everybody has one true love and that that's like, like you know and and so especially in the case of Kate and Edwina and their mom it's technically Kate's stepmom because Kate's mom died and then her dad remarried but they have a whole scene where um her stepmom who she just treats her like a daughter and a mom, says like, well, your father and I saw each other like across a room and sparks flew and we just immediately knew. And so I had to do like something that I knew my family would hate and I had to marry him even though he wasn't like the right social class or whatever because we just knew it was true love. And all of the Bridgertons have this concept like that their parents were true love. There's nobody else out there, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, but... How does that make Kate feel about her own mother's relationship with her father if like uh you know if her stepmom was his true love? And I'm like th- I think there's like some like there's a link missing here with mm. this concept that there's only one person out there for everybody. Um and I get that that's kind of a nice fantasy and that is sort of the fantasy that that gets operated on in a lot of regency romance novels a lot for what Sarah's saying about like making the love choice versus the practical choice, um, like financial kind of choice. But uh, it, it, it was starting to really grate on me. This, this idea. Maybe
1: this is, maybe this is why the Bridgerton family are so emotionally marred by the perfection of their parents. They're the most annoyingly perfect people to exist. They all love each other so much that it makes me watching them really uncomfortable. <laughs> and it, I don't, it, yeah. it makes me kind of feel like a terrible person because I'm like, this family loves each other so much. It's too much. It's too much love. I don't like it. I just need, Yeah. I just need like the least tiniest little bit of like true dysfunction to make this a believable family unit but no they, they love each other too much like they are the most loving family in all of society and no one in the show will shut up about it
0: right and like I and this is possibly misguided of me what I knew of this second series before it started I was like oh is this a taming of the shrew riff and I was really keen on the idea that there would be a bit of a like Proper enemies to lovers are. One of my favorite tropes is the sort of forced proximity mm-hmm. that they almost had going on in the first season. But I love the when I love the classic of, like, it's a practical engagement, it's the thing that you have to do, turns out you actually get on really well and you're in love with each other. And I think that's a really fun one. But now I'm looking at the rest of the series and I'm thinking about, like, what the next <laughs> fucking six seasons are going to be. And it's like, well, okay, so is every single one just going to be this non-existent tension of, like, find your one true love? <laughs> And I hate it (laughs) because none of these people have any personality and none of them have any spark and none of them ever like actually fight with each other. And none of
2: them do anything. (laughs) I think it would be really interesting if you had them when they're all together, is this like just bland mass of Bridgertons. But then when they go off and they have interactions with other people, you get a sense of their personalities and like their internal lives that are different and separate from the rest of their family. But there is none of that, and even things that would bring out, like Eloise being a radical, is it, within the fiction of Regency England, is uh, a terrible thing because, uh, like, that's not what women are supposed to be. But even within the expanded fiction of Bridgerton, like it, her being a radical is an existential threat to this family. And their response to it, their response for being completely ostracized by the entire ton, uh, is that they just, like, lounge Mm. around and quip about it.
0: Yeah. But you're you're also, you're telling me that there are eight kids in this house who are fairly close in age and no one's ever (laughs) broken someone else's nose and no one's ever, like, thrown something through a window and no one's ever, like, had any hijinks. And the closest that you ever come to that is this bullshit croquet game that they play where they, like... Beat each other up with fucking mallets and stuff, but no one actually gets hurt. It's just harmless hijinks of knocking someone else's ball into a bush, and it's just—it's just not funny or smart or real. Like I have one sibling, and we have absolutely. We used to beat the shit out of each other. (laughs) You're telling me that there are eight
2: kids and they all just universally adore each other? Yeah, and they all, like, they have this one thing that they compete and they're incredibly competitive and it's it's just in this one field, there's nothing else. There's a lot of bickering, but it's, like, very surface-level bickering
1: in a way of, like, oh, we're bickering, we're bickering. We love each other so much, look at us bicker because we know each other so well. Disgusting.
2: Yeah.
3: I feel like they did something similar to with Kate and Edwina, whereby it was like, they love each other and they're like these perfect siblings. And even when something massive came between them at, at Edwina's wedding, um, there's like a small fight and then it, it like just sort of immediately resolves. And I was like, well, first of all, we almost had to kill Kate for it to resolve. Um, But like, It was kind of like if I were Edwina, I obviously wouldn't want my sister to die. But like, I also don't know that I would have been like, like Sarah says, I don't think I would have been like, well, it's okay. Be true to yourself and it's all fine. Um, I don't know if you all watch the show Human Resources on Netflix. Um, It's a spinoff of a cartoon called Big Mouth. Um, But there's a character in it who starts dating her best friend's ex uh, hookup so not like even boyfriend but she starts dating her best friend's ex hookup and the best friend gets really mad and they end up singing this song called are you in love or just an asshole <laughs> and uh it was sort of like if you love him it's fine but if you're just like getting with him and hooking up with him then you're an asshole and so the character is like i am in love with him so i'm not an asshole and then she goes to her best friend and she's like hey though i wanted to tell you it's the actually we're in love with each other so it's okay and the friend is like is that supposed to make me feel better oh great you love him so what was I just shit he never even liked me to begin with and she's like no I thought it would make you feel better that we were in love and she's like no it makes me feel worse and I was like actually that's so true Um, and I was like this just this is such a great other Netflix show counterpoint to what happens with Kate and Edwina where it's like if you love him it's fun." I was like it should actually make Italy is anyone it feel else worse.
1: really concerned <laughs> yeah. about what's gonna happen to Anthony and Kate when the sex hormones wear off because it seems like they don't like each other at all beyond really 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 wanting to have sex
0: that was the thing they didn't even persuade me on the enemies to lovers they were just like we're kind of (laughs) horny we're super competitive (laughs) we love to have angry sex and it's not it's not Mm -hmm. convincing at all like absolutely i believe in the power of a hate fuck and i think that that's a really effective thing in a drama like this but they don't even seem to have that going on for them they're just kind of like well we banged outside one time and now we're feeling complicated about it and i just i just don't believe any of them actually like
2: each other i think that's stuff that can could like, if... I mean, I'm not advocating for the, making this show longer <laughs> by any means, but I feel like... <laughs> so long. Far too long. But what could have happened is that you could have had less scenes of, like, indistinguishable sibling bonding and having more scenes of, like, pining and, like, being horny at a distance. Like, just anything about this, the couple like interacting with each other in a way, you know, where you're like, ah, oh, do they like each other? Do they not like each other? Oh, this is right. interesting. It was just, and there wasn't even any mm. sucking the venom out of her boobs.
0: And this it- is why I'm like, this show is made by straights for straights because at the same time as I was watching Bridgerton, <laughs> Flo was watching Lovers Blind. And it's, exa- it's the same plot It's this thing of like oh, I don't know if we like each other Or if we just have things in common <laughs> And marriage is the ultimate goal for everybody And no one actually does any pining or yearning Nobody is horny Everyone is just kind of like Oh yes, marriage <laughs> And it's 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 It drives me up the
2: fucking wall <laughs> can, can we talk about the weird Like the marriage scheme mm. subplot thing That like so Kate... So this is another thing where I was like, ah, oh, look, some material consequences. This will be interesting. Where Kate uh, has made this deal with her mum's parents that if Edwina gets married, like, they will support her economically, I think. And then, you know, they make... The, she makes this deal with the devil. She, her sister has to get married for it to go through. Uh they meet, the, they meet these horrible people, and that all falls through, and now, they are even more dependent on, like, they have no money, if Edwina doesn't get married to the Viscount, they will, like, be essentially destitute, so there is, like, even more, t- even more impetus for them to get married, because there is, like, because before that, she could have gotten married to anyone, and they would still have gotten the money, and then, the parents would have supported them.
3: But I think now, it had to be. I think it had to be a member of the peerage. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. It had
0: to be an English peer, and it's like, well, okay, then that's fine. But yeah. like these fucking hijinks don't make any
2: sense. Yeah, but like, but when when they have been insulted and they've withdrawn their support, then there's even more pressure for Advina to get married to to the viscount. But then, yeah. like, so. You know, I was like, oh, okay, so I see, even, like, even Kate can't be, like, back out of this now, because this actually has material consequences. And then they all back out of it, and there is, like, no discussion about it. I that.
1: think when all the other stuff goes down with Anthony and Kate, they kind of retcon that plot point, and kind of effectively say... Lady Danbury's volunteered to support Edwina for another season so that she can come back and have another crack at the marriage market which simultaneously is not an effective solution to the problem of like the whole family needs financial support but also is like like it completely neutralizes the, the very sort of present and real danger of not getting that inheritance money
2: and also, mm-hmm. at this point, Ed, Edwina has already jilted her husband, husband-to-be husband at the altar. Like, she knew about this plot that if she doesn't get... So now if she doesn't get married, the, her entire family would be destitute. She still makes the choice to... Against, you know, like, knowing this, she still makes the choice to run out of, like, the Queen's palace in the middle of her wedding. Uh... And then afterwards, it turns out it's all okay.
3: Yeah, I, I have several thoughts about this kind of... So, f- first of all, I feel like... Yeah, Edwina's never going to be able to get married again, basically. Like, she, she ran the risk of insulting everybody in the town. Um, and then also, like, the fact that everybody in this show keeps saying one thing and then doing something else, but the show doesn't seem to see that there's an inherent contradiction. So an example is Kate, like right off the bat, is like, I would do anything for my sister. I would do anything for her and I would never embarrass her in public. And yet Kate keeps causing scenes at balls and things and I was like, Kate is actually actively making it so much more difficult for Edwina to find a husband. And then she's like, I would never do anything to hurt my sister. Oh, but hey there, Anthony. And then everyone's like, ooh, what's going on? Gossip. And I was like, I just don't. I was like, why would she do that? She's. She just said she wouldn't cause any fuss and here she is doing exactly what she said she would never do like she was like the anti-angelica schuyler to me you know like in in hamilton um angelica like looks over and sees her sister's face and she is helpless and so she goes over and even though she's like kind of got the hots for hamilton she's like here's my sister because i know what my duty is and i know what her duty is and i can also see that she's in love and i'm you know i might suffer but I love my sister so much. I don't mind my own suffering. And it's like, Kate says that that's how she feels, but then she acts completely differently. And then also there was this moment with Lady Danbury who I actually like Lady Danbury a lot in general. I think she's one of the more fun characters. Um, But she, there's like a scene, I think at the country house, maybe when they're down at the Bridgertons, but it's before anybody's noticed anything with Kate and Anthony. And Kate says like I'm just going to go back to India after this and be independent and maybe be a governess or something and she's like you can't you think you can be like me I was married and I earned my independence and my widowhood by feeling deep emotion and you've cut yourself off from everybody and maybe you just need to learn how to open up to the world and consider a romantic relationship because that's the essence and fulfillment of all of life and then um Then, you know, she starts to see that Kate and Anthony are kind of, like, having this thing, even though Edwina and Anthony are courting. And uh, then, like, literally the next episode, she says something to Kate, like, you know, you should value your independence. Why don't you just go back to India? There are some women who would see this as a much better alternative to even getting married. And it was like, you're the one in the last episode who told her to open her heart to love. What? what is even happening? Like, it just felt like nobody read through the scripts the second time and went, oh, this is a direct contradiction.
1: There were a lot of people having conversations that actually weren't about what they purported to be about, if you see what I mean. Because there had to be intentional misunderstanding and misreading of what conversations were about in the script for the plot to continue in this kind of circuitous and and tortuous path of of you know sexual tension misunderstanding like all of the mother figures can tell that kate and anthony have the hots for each other daphne can tell but rather than anyone actually bringing that up and being like seems like you might be going after the wrong sister matey have you considered that you might actually be misinterpreting your own feelings on this they all just wiggle their eyebrows at each other like oh no Oh no, oh no! They're <laughs> wiggling their eyebrows like maniacs, but no one's actually
2: having the conversation. But don't you think that this is a, um, a a problem with like the the medium? Like in in a in a text, you would have the like it's it's all the mother figures standing in as like a sort of audience substitute, right? So in mm. the text, you would read something, and there is like. Uh, one line of dialogue and then the hero is like oh no she is so like infuriating and strangely <laughs> attracted to her and like you have and you have and, and as the reader you're like aha yeah, yeah yeah i see what you're doing here like you like there's about to be a hate fuck but in this in the show you can't have that sort of well or, or the writing you know you'd have to do that with like cameras and people looking at each other and being good actors <laughs> but here you just have like an audience substitute just kind of wiggling their eyebrows at each other being like you mm, should know what's happening yeah
1: no it's true that the the mm. format doesn't quite translate when I don't like I don't want to say that the actor the acting between the two leads is bad like they do have chemistry but it's like it's very it's a very physical chemistry, and I think again, it just kind of mm. comes back to that that issue of um what happens when the sex hormones wear off because neither of them seem to particularly have insight mm. into what is drawing them together, which is in a sense this shared trauma of having to be a kind of pseudo parental figure when a major parent influence in their life was lost like that's what psychologically is bonding them
0: I think that both of them like they're not bad actors they have their moments but Simone Ashley does this thing where like her main kind of expression of emotion is she sort of purses her lips um and Jonathan Bailey does this thing where his main expression of emotion is that he does this really like (laughs) confused bug-eye face and that (laughs) sort of works when you see one of their faces responding to something but you never really get the sense that they're actually talking to each other and I, I, I'm like I just don't think they do have good chemistry <laughs> you know I'm sure they're kind of okay in other things I haven't seen either of them in anything else to be honest but they just don't really have much like going on and they never talk to each other
3: I, I feel like I feel like the problem with this world that they've set up is that there's no such thing as lust. There's only love. Yes. And that is really bothersome to me because it's like if you feel like an inkling of horniness towards somebody, it must be true love. <laughs> and that's like all that that exists. And I was like, have these people never heard of lust? Like, And I get like, obviously, with the the strictures of Regency Society... Uh, particularly in the classes that they are dealing with you could not just like go and have a one night stand and then be like okay cool that was fun bye um like unless well, there were there's a lot around sexuality in the 19th century and we won't get into that um th- there were ways you could do that but not not in the way that a regency romance envisions it um so I was just like I feel like the way that this world is set up nobody is suggesting to Anthony that like maybe he just feels wildly lustful towards Kate and that maybe he needs to give things with Edwina a chance because actually personality wise they seem to bring out the best in each other because there's a whole conversation about how love is bringing out the best in the person you're with and I was like I don't see Kate and Anthony bringing out the I see them bringing out the worst in each other frankly and that's That's not fun or funny for anybody and is not going to make a good marriage after, like Helen says, they're done having sex for a while. Um, Whereas I feel like Edwina actually is like much more somebody that could help him grow and overcome the trauma that he has suffered with watching his father die and having to take on all these responsibilities too young. And I was like, nobody's actually looking at these people's personalities. It's very frustrating.
0: And I mean- The whole of the first season, Anthony is like hooking up with an actress or something. And there are several sort of like weird montages of him leaving coins on sex workers nightstands at the beginning of this season. And it's like, well, this man (laughs) allegedly fucks, like according to the show, (laughs) this man fucks but I don't believe that he does (laughs) because he's so, and it's the whole point is that he's meant to be sort of obsessed with duty and like puts everything else aside. And it's like, okay, if he's really obsessed with duty, then like, absolutely. He can just marry someone convenient and continue to allegedly fuck on the side. Like that's fine. That is a solution that serves everyone. But because of this obsession with the one true love whole like thing, it's not acceptable within the show. And it's just like, I don't believe that this man is capable of love. He has so much stuff going on. I mean, actually... I don't believe that he is capable <laughs> of actually feeling things for another person. He needs a dutiful wife and a bit on the side. And that's fine. And that would make him very happy.
2: But I thought that this is one of the things that I was like quite thinking back on it i was like well i actually thought that the development of anthony from being someone who cares about who's you know has this the weight of the duty of his entire family on him he has all this um he's going to marry it's time for him to get married he's going to find the the most suitable wife and you know she's like if she fulfills a role he doesn't have to love her that will come with time i was like right like that's that that's a really interesting start for a compelling yes. character arc where he will change and develop over time, uh, but because everyone in his life is like, well, that's not good enough. That's not how you should live your life, and um, he's, and because then he also is like, oh yeah, no, actually, I do really want true love, and that's the thing that I've been brought up thinking is the most important thing. It doesn't, like, he never has that growth. Like, he's just the same as he was in the beginning, it's just that, like, we, apparently we never knew that all they cared about was true love.
1: Men will literally orchestrate enemies um... to lovers instead of going to therapy.
0: <laughs> Men will literally throw themselves into muddy ponds with women that they uh... hate instead of going to therapy. <laughs> Men will literally suck bee venom out of a tit instead what of this? going to therapy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I can't believe that's we've been robbed. Like that's not.
0: That would have made up for all of my anger (laughs) at the lack of pointiness. Like they just
2: needed to do one unhingedly. (laughs) They needed to cut about 15 minutes from every episode and then include some bee sucking venom. Bee venom sucking.
1: But I'm just trying to think about like what camera angle could you possibly use to make sucking the titty. Look sexy on screen. I'm sorry. Is th- thing, th- this is
2: th- like, have you not seen? There are so many vampire films where I feel like that's, like, th- this is not a oh, true. We'll Just do that with like that weird light blue filter they have shoot everything through, <laughs> and it's fine. Yeah.
0: I also feel like one of the things that Bridgerton is missing is the fact that like, I think most romances and most films are missing this. Sex is funny, and sex is kind of gross. And like, often Hmm. sex is deeply unsexy in the kind of like stylized way that you get with something like this. And that's why I'm not convinced by any of the romances in this. And that's why I was so mad about the like, library cunnilingus in season one and all those scenes where she's like, immediately coming because he's like vaguely touched her. And all of that stuff. And it's like, sex is not actually sexy most of the time. It's funny and it's intimate and it's a little bit gross. But you like, you don't just, you don't just go down on someone on a stone staircase. (laughs) Like, that's not fun for anyone involved.
2: And like, it might be very pretty when you're like falling asleep under these like, Visteria covered, like, fake Greek folly or whatever the fuck that is you have. But you're not actually, like, it's not a nice place. Like, you don't actually want to bone there. No.
3: Mm-hmm. So, did you all ever watch Gilmore Girls? I watched it when I was, like, much younger. Um, But there is, like, an episode where Rory's best friend, Lane, goes on her honeymoon. And she's a virgin going on her honeymoon. And they get back and Rory's like, how was it? And she's like, well... Zach and I decided it would be really romantic if we had sex on a beach for my first time. And let me tell you, it was just sandy and we managed to be in like a crab nest, basically. And she was like, it was the worst. And I was like, oh, it's like finally a realistic portrayal of what outdoor sex can be like. Um, But yeah, I also agree, like and that is part of the fantasy of Regency romance is that everybody like gets off immediately and wonderfully really quickly. but an Offer from a Gentleman, which is the third book, and I believe is the Benedict book, uh, it's, like, he falls in love with this uh, gal named Sophie, Sophia, and she's a maid because it's, like, a Cinderella thing. She's the bastard daughter of a lord, but she's been working as a maid, and they start to fall in love, and they are, you know, repressing their feelings, and then they end up, like, finally having sex on, like, this couch in his living room, which, like... Couches are fine, but it just takes me back to like the twin beds and undergrad and you're like, oh, these were not great. Um, but like there's like zero foreplay and then he like immediately she's like, oh, my gosh, this was great. And it's actually weirdly through his POV rather than hers at that point. And like and and she's just like, was it, is it always like that? And he's like, no, that was magical. And I was like, I feel like that was really fast and there was no foreplay and she was a virgin and i feel like it would just have been painful like uh, just i i don't i don't buy this but yeah i feel like that this show particularly this season was like a lot less sexy and even in a fantasy sex way it was a lot less yeah. sexy it is really exciting. funny
1: in season 1 when you start to realize how fast the sex scenes yes. are and it kind of loses a dimension of like attraction because it's like three pumps and he's done <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: it's because he's got to be really careful not to
0: come in his wife (laughs)
2: Um, can i talk can we talk about the plot point that i really liked the lady featherington and cousin jack that was great Mm -hmm. it was yes
3: i was just gonna say let's talk about the feathering it was
2: so good um because for once we actually got something that mattered like for, um, mm-hmm, for yeah.
0: listeners who can't see yeah. what's going on right now, Sarah has a dog's face, like in her face, and is like petting a very beautiful dog while trying to explain <laughs> this. So if yeah. there are any weird noises that's what's going on.
1: Ultimate multitasking. It is my, my beautiful <laughs> Arnold. Uh,
2: anyway, yeah, so the Featheringtons um, as you might remember from the first season where Lady Featherington's husband dies and there are three daughters. It's Penelope and two...
0: Like Philida and Philomena and Portia and Phosphorescence. Yeah, and... and they've all got ridiculous key <laughs> names.
2: Yeah. And Penelope! Uh, and the, a big plot point is that one of them needs her diary so that she can get married. And the other one, like, they are completely... They have no money and they need to raise some money. And the because there are no boys in the family... The Cousin Jack, like an, uh, a fairly far removed cousin, is coming from America to help them out and become head of this family. And he sweeps in, and he has a ruby mine, right? Uh, he seems to be interested in someone else, and then the mother decides that he should get married to one of her daughters. Because, but then it turns out that his rubies are fake. He doesn't actually have any money. And Lady Featherington and Cousin Jack uh, devised this scam to, like. Get investors from the British aristocracy to give him loads of money and then they're gonna to flee to America obviously, they get foiled by like an indistinguishable Bridgerton boy and uh, She like cuts him loose and cousin Jack has to disappear and Lady Featherington like pockets a lot of the money herself. I loved this plot Like, I thought it was really, really good.
3: It was, I also felt like Jack and Lady Featherington had the most chemistry of anybody in this show, um, And, like, obviously, like, spoiler alert that she, like, sort of plays him, essentially. But before you know that she's going to play him, he's definitely hinting that he could marry her and they could run away to America together. And I was like, I want a spinoff of these two (laughs) running a saloon in the Old West. Like, that is 100% (laughs) what I want from this show. (laughs) yeah um and then i i loved the ending though where like sarah says it it's the only plot that seems to have any meaning and to show a real love for her family which before you kind of feel like she dis not disdains exactly but Um, there's a lot of talk about how she always dresses Penelope in this ugly yellow color. um, And like all of them have a much more um, literally like ugly stepsister look. So the costume designer for Bridgerton is the same who did costumes for the 1997 Whitney Houston Cinderella. And like it has like the Bridgertons are all dressed like Cinderella and the Featheringtons are all dressed in these garish over the top colors and fabrics. And it sort of seems to signify that they aren't, that they don't have any deep emotion for each other, that they are dysfunctional, that they're horrible. But then actually, I felt like in this season, I saw that they loved each other and cared for each other so much more than the Bridgertons.
1: Right, yeah, I completely agree. And I think that that, like, it really speaks to, like, that eerie Midwich Cuckoo-style perfection that the identical Bridgertons have, that the Featheringtons don't. But they are... For that, a much more believable family. The sisters bicker. The sisters smack each other on the backs of the necks with their fans. Um, one of the sisters has like a weird crush on her own cousin. You know, the mum has favourites. Penelope is not the favourite child and there's like a mother daughter rivalry there. But these are all things that crop up in real families and they're awkward and messy and difficult and like that to me is like that is what having a real family is about and then at the end you think they're all going to throw each other over and they actually end up coming back together and, and making it work for each other and that's uh, yeah, like and really like, nice the in a way, weird way. Uh,
2: you can understand that they need to like throw a ball or go to a ball because if this doesn't go right for them like they're uh, lifestyle their entire lives could be potentially be uprooted everything would go really really wrong for them uh so they have to get these things right so the kind of minutiae that were asked to be so invested in in bridgerton like makes sense whereas in bridgerton no one comes like in the bridgerton family no one comes to their ball and they just like dance on their own because they're a close-knit happy group
1: Right, we're the Bridgerton's. We don't need anyone else. All that we need is each other. Nah, nah, nah.
2: Right. If that was the case, why did you throw that massive ball then? Whereas with the Featherington family, like you actually get a sense like this is why it matters. Mm.
0: There are stakes. And yeah, and yeah, they're just they're so much more interesting because like the whole plot with Lady Featherington and Cousin Jack is so much more interesting because the woman who plays Lady Featherington can act. Mm. I can't remember her name. She was also brilliantly schemy in Line of Duty, which I'm embarrassed to have watched. And Brown, I haven't seen that. Um,
3: oh, she was great. In she's Rome. really
0: good because she does everything. Like she, she's another one who like understands exactly how camp this show is. Mm. And one of the things that is great about this kind of situation is you see her character's dilemma between like loyalty to her family and the fact that she's being seduced by this man and she wants money because she wants security and she's not like a conniving scheming little miser she's like actually I want to protect my children and that's why the kind of denouement of that plot is so much more interesting and it's why you get the kind of tension of like you can see that she's genuinely thinking about like ditching her daughters and running off to America and the dilemma that she has is so much more interesting than anyone else's. And she is like, she really annoyed me in the first season and she completely came into her own in this one. And I loved her so much more this time around.
2: I would watch all the, like, 52,000 hours of Bridgerton if it was just about that family. Like, that's <laughs> yes. the... Like, that's the narrative that I care about.
0: Having said that, though, I never really got the sense of, like, why Penelope is doing what she's doing with the Lady Down stuff. Like, she's got a bunch of money under a floorboard. She likes to feel important. You get the sense that she's doing it partially for the financial security and partially because she feels very rejected by the society that they're part of. But I never really got her motivation. And that's not Nicola Cochrane's fault. Nicola Cochran is fucking fantastic. But there's, there's something missing with her character, and especially with her character's relationship to Eloise in the second season.
2: Yeah, the only thing that I would add to that is that, like, my, from, based on my own experience of being a teenage girl, is that if you have, like, a good pal, like, how are they not writing that together? Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, everything I know about, like, like, the number of, like, weird fan scenes and, like, manifestos that you wrote with, like, your your teenage, like, your girl group, right? Like, that's just a part of it. Like, that's a part... For me, that was, like, a, a really, like, quick, like, central part of, like, being a teenager, right? Was, like, mm-hmm. you constantly had some, like, half-cocked-up, like, writing project that you had with, like, four other people and it never got <laughs> off the ground but yeah. you kind of wrote a couple yeah. of... <laughs> a couple of scenes and then you never got around to photocopying them or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, that's... That was the... So... So Penelope is like doing this on her own and her best friend who she's sharing like lots of interest with. Like, like how are they not writing this together? Yeah, Like I understand yeah. like for the plot that doesn't work, but still.
0: I, I would also say yeah. that I think in season two they did a really good job capturing the experience of being a teenager with a bad friend and the way that Eloise treats Penelope felt very true to life. Um, I don't know if any of you had real bad friends as a teen, but, but when you're friends with someone who is essentially just like so fucking narcissistic, and never actually listens to you doesn't care about what you're actually interested in or doing like eloise never asks penelope a single question she just absolutely takes for no. granted that penelope agrees with her on everything and i have to say that was like a depressingly realistic view of teen female friendship
3: i also felt like uh the whole thing with eloise there at the end um to me seemed like we got the idea that eloise actually has thought that she's been better than pen this whole yeah. time. Um, just because she's a Bridgerton and she has such a high opinion of herself. And I thought that that was really interesting that it's like she's sort of classist within her own class ranking. Uh, And I was like, wow, this is really intense.
1: And the, the moment where she finally realizes that Penelope is Lady Whistledown, it's not some circumstantial reveal where she catches her in an act, she actually listens to what she's saying for once, for the and that's time what ever. makes her realise that Penelope is Lady Whistledown. She, she's like, wow, you have the same voice as Lady Whistledown. And it kind of just makes you realise, like, the whole time they were having these cosy little arm-in-arm best friend exchanges, Eloise was really just kind of constructing the narrative for who Pen was the whole time. Also, her name is Pen! Sorry. So from a narrative perspective, <laughs> when they kept going like pen, 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 I was like, oh God, that's so on the
2: nose. Um, what could future seasons do to redeem themselves in your eyes?
0: Have some gaze in the writer's room. Yes. Yeah.
3: And have some gaze on I the mean, screen. I mean, that would also
0: be nice. But like, have someone in the writer's room who understands like yearning, pining and social dilemmas.
2: I would, for me, I would love to see if there was a season that was just about uh, Eloise and Penn, like reconciling and building yes. like their friendship, as the individuals that they are, and not as who they have imagined the other one to be. And that's there's no boys, there is no sex. It's just their platonic love for each other. Mm. Yeah,
0: and Featherington Wild West spin off. Yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. I want, I want future seasons to actually like. The things that were good about season one were the horniness and the frivolity Mm -hmm. and the fact that nothing really mattered. But the things that happened in season two is that they took this idea of like, oh, okay, so people like the drama? And it's like, no, 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 we don't like the drama. We like that the drama has a payoff. Mm -hmm. And instead, season two, it felt like things kept happening, but there were no consequences. And that really annoyed me. Yeah. I want to see the Bridgertons actually fighting with each other and having personalities
1: yes real familial conflict yeah i think that's it
2: yeah
0: (laughs) we've said so much we worked through some things today guys (laughs) thank you for joining us for our group therapy session (laughs) um i i hate this show and yet i'm such a sucker for the discourse that i will watch it until either i or it dies
3: I feel like my feelings toward the show are summed up in that GIF of Daniel Craig from *Knives Out*, where he says, "Compels me." Yeah. Like, <laughs> <Don't have sense. laughs> like, compels me. Like though. draining
1: the venom from a titty. I will continue to drink every last <laughs> drop of this nightmare show. <laughs> oh
0: my god! Okay, we have to stop that. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week with another episode. We're back into the swing of things now. We've got loads of stuff recorded and ready to go. And thank you for being patient with us over our break. In the meantime, as always, we are on Twitter at History Friction. And if you want to follow us individually, you can find us all there. You can also support us on Patreon at Historical Friction. If you fancy giving us some financial support to make these episodes and eventually one day have better tech than we do right now. It would also be lovely to hear from you. If you've got any questions, comments, suggestions, dilemmas, no complaints, please. Drop us a message on Twitter or via our Patreon page and maybe we'll answer you. Bye.